Credentials matter. You'll learn this real quickly if you're trying to get onto Hanscom Air Force Base. Without the proper credentials, uh, you see there are certain standards for getting on there, for gaining access. And a few months ago, our family, the Cope family, was trying to get together with the Marrero crew. And uh, because of my military status, I got on. It was a breeze. Uh, but my beloved wife, Kate, we, we, the process was laborious. Let's just say that. For 30 minutes, we waited at the visitor center. I had to sponsor her request to get on base. They had to run a background check on my wife. Our Chipotle got cold as we waited. The truth is that it didn't matter how sincere our desires or how urgent our request. What matters if she was qualified. They would gladly receive her with the proper credentials, but apart from them, the gates would be shut. What kind of qualifications do we need to enter God's presence? Psalm 16 states, in your presence, O God, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Uh, so dwelling with God is a deeply desirable thing. Uh, he's the source of all joy and pleasure, all the good that we would enjoy. Yet, if even Hanscom Air Force Base has a procedure and standards for entering its gates, I've wondered if you've ever thought about what God's standards are. Maybe you assume that they're very strict and that only the really disciplined and religiously devout can earn that kind of welcome and standing before him. Or maybe you tend to think that God's standards are pretty lax. You know, he understands. You know, nobody's perfect. He understands that if you're a good neighbor, you try your hardest. Sure, none of us are perfect, but isn't that good enough? This Easter morning, do you have confidence in your standing before the Lord? To help us answer this question, this morning we'll be considering Psalm 24. Uh, so I'd encourage you to turn there. And actually, why don't you turn to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. We're going to do some work before we get to our sermon passage. I, I mentioned this last week, but I want to unpack it a little bit more. Uh, that we shouldn't think of the Psalter, the 150 Psalms that we have in our Bibles, as being in a random order, uh, with no rhyme or reason as to their arrangement. It's not as if they were on shuffle mode on Spotify, and they just happened to end up with this 150 arrangement. Uh, instead, we should think about the book of Psalms as a musical album deliberately arranged to tell a story. There is a plot line to this book of the Bible, a beginning, a middle, and an end. So, for example, we can detect this movement even at a macro level uh, simply by considering the way the Psalter begins and the way it ends. The way it begins is with a few dozen psalms from David where, like, nine out of ten psalms, he's crying out for help. He's in distress and affliction and persecution. And he's desperate for relief. Well, that's the beginning of the Psalter. In the middle of the book of Psalms, you have these stories of deliverance, of God saving his people, of God saving the king. And then the, the book of Psalms ends in Psalms 146 to 150. Uh, each Psalm, 146, 147, 148, 149, 150, each Psalm begins and ends with praise the Lord. 
And so the book of Psalms, well, it begins with affliction and suffering, but it, and it goes through salvation to end in praise, in praise and thanksgiving. So it's likely that the scribe Ezra at the end of the Old Testament time period, uh, or one of his contemporaries, was the one who helped shape the form of the book of Psalms. And uh, so ideally, these Psalms aren't read in isolation, uh, but they are interdependent with one another. Okay, so you totally have my permission to read a Psalm by its own. You don't have to study the other Psalms. Don't worry. But I'm saying it's best, ideally, to see how they are interdependent. So, so before we get to Psalm 24, where our passage is, we've got to look at the beginning of the story, which is Psalms 1 and 2. Before we zoom in on chapter 24, we've got to zoom out and understand the bigger picture. So the book of Psalms, according to Psalms 1 and 2, and, and the rest of the Psalter, really, I think it's important that we note, is about and addressed to the anointed king of Israel. The book of Psalms is about and addressed to the anointed king of Israel. Now, this might not seem like a big deal to you at first. It might seem commonplace or blasé. But I'm insisting that the book of Psalms is not, first and foremost, about you and me. It's not fundamentally first written to you and me or the nation of Israel even. Uh, but that we need to read individual psalms, like last week, Psalm 23, and this week, Psalm 24, in light of the storyline of the king of Israel. These 150 psalms are meant to give us a picture as to the identity and character and circumstances and work of the anointed king. Okay, so look at Psalms 1 and 2. The first 41 books are known as the... Uh, First 41 Psalms are known as book one of the Psalter. They are all, except for one, ascribed to David. Uh, this whole first book is written about his life and struggles and relationship with God, except for Psalms one and two, they are different. They aren't given a superscription, which is like a title to the Psalms. We're, we're not told their author. It seems that they were deliberately arranged and placed first as a kind of introduction or preface to the book. So Psalm 1-1 begins, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Now again, you could read this. It's about any Israelites, about you and me. It's a valid application of it. But more than that, these instructions sound a lot like what Moses had commanded to Israel's king in Deuteronomy 17. So just listen. Deuteronomy 17 reads, And when the king of Israel sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in, uh, in the book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord by keeping all the words of this law. What is, what is God, through Moses, telling the future king of Israel to do? Well, he's telling him to write out God's law every day, all the time. Well, why? So that he might meditate on it. So that it might be what, what comes in and comes out of this king. Psalm 1 sounds a lot like the commands given to the king in Deuteronomy 17. And then when we get to Psalm 2, we read, Why do the nations rage? 
and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. You know, if, if you could read Psalm 1 as referring to any pious Israelite, Psalm 2 is explicitly about the anointed king of Israel. It's literally who the entire Psalm, Psalm 2, is about, this son of God, this king of Israel. And so Psalm 2 verse 12 ends with, Kiss the son, lest you be angry and you perish in the way. Echoing language of Psalm 1. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 ends the way Psalm 1 began. You see how it kind of brackets the concept of blessing? Blessed is the man who meditates on God's law day and night. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in God's anointed son. The upshot of all this is that the Psalms is focused on the anointed king. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 prime us to think about the king of Israel. In Psalm 1, this king is commanded to uh, meditate on God's law. In Psalm 2, he should expect opposition. And so the next dozen or so Psalms are devoted almost exclusively to David's peril at the hands of wicked men in fulfillment of Psalm 2. Uh, they tell the story of antagonism and persecution. And it comes to a dramatic climax, kind of at the, the beginning of the Psalter, in Psalm 18. So if you have a Bible, do just, just flip there for a second. Psalm 18, it continues the narrative of the book of Psalms with the second longest superscription. It reads, to the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. You see, Psalm 18 tells the story of how David was pursued by his enemies, by King Saul. Uh, things looked really, really hopeless, really bad. But then Psalm 18 verse 16 reads, The Lord sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. Here, David uses resurrection type language to describe how the Lord saved him from peril. And then look how Psalm 18 ends, this high point in the first few chapters of the Psalter. Look how it ends in verses 49 and 50. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Okay, so what's going on here in Psalm 18? Well, the language is really similar to Psalm 2, isn't it? And the, the point is that is not merely how God saved David from his affliction, but that, that God's work of saving David was kind of a, it's a type and a foreshadowing of the salvation that God would work for the future anointed offspring of David, the future king of Israel, who's persecuted by his foes, but experiences God's saving, resurrecting power. 
We're getting closer to Psalm 24, so just bear with me. The story continues in Psalm 19 with a meditation on God's general revelation in creation and God's special revelation in his word. Uh, Just notice how Psalm 19 ends. David prays, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Does that little phrase sound familiar? It's the opening words of Psalm 18, what we just read. Uh, David is living out Psalm 18 because he delights in God's word. And he delights in God's word because the Lord is his rock and redeemer. Then in Psalms 20 and 21, which we considered last week, uh, David leads the nation of Israel to pray for the king's salvation. Yet Psalm 22 began with the king crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words which the Lord Jesus would repeat as he was dying on the cross. And so that David responded in Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And that is what we saw last week, what Psalm 23 is all about. Declaring how the Lord is David's shepherd. And then notice how Psalm 23 ends. David states confidently, I shall dwell in the house of of the Lord forever. David desires to be in God's presence forever. And it's that theme which Psalm 24 picks up on. So it's with all that context in mind that we come now to our passage, Psalm 24. We'll have three sections this morning. And the main idea of our passage is simply this. Jesus is the king of Israel the king of glory, who leads us into God's house. Jesus is the king of Israel, the king of glory, who leads us into God's house. So look with me at Psalm 24. A psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah and amen. Well, our first point is found in verses 1 and 2, entitled, The Owner of Creation. Verse 1 provides the main assertion. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Uh, In short, everything belongs to God. And then the reason for that is given in verse 2. Because, or for, 
He founded it. You know, God owns everything, verse 1, because he made everything, verse 2. He is our creator, and we belong to him. Now, now the fact that God is the creator, the fact that the Bible asserts that God is the creator, might seem obvious to you. You know, it might seem like a, a theological axiom or a scientific truth to debate, Perhaps you conceive of it as a poetic understanding meant to comfort us in hard times. But friends, the fact that God is creator has massive implications for our lives. It's explosively relevant to what you do this afternoon and tomorrow and the day after that. You see, if, if God is our creator, it changes everything. Today, society seems to be obsessed with the notion that we are our own. That we are our own captains and our own bosses. We are our own authorities and pilots. We can chart the course of our lives however we see fit. And because we have no creator, we answer to no one. I can live however I want. I can marry whoever I want. I can spend my money however I want. I can treat others however I want. I'm in charge. And yet, beloved, this way of living is ultimately based on the lie that we are self-created beings. Uh, That we can create and we must create our own identities because God hasn't given us one. He's not our creator, so we have to get to the work of creating ourselves, defining ourselves however we want. Having no creator, we have no owner, no Lord, no king to whom we must give an account for how we have lived. But friends, this is a fool's errand. You know, if your your parents or your grandparents were to pass on to you a great family heirloom for its safekeeping and preservation... The fact that you are not the owner of this valuable, but the mere steward of it, well, it would have massive implications on how you treated that object, right? Uh, if So conversely, if you just go to the local pottery class and you make a little teacup or plate, uh, you can go home, you can do whatever you want with it, right? You can give it to your kids, you can throw it in the trash, you can put it on display, you can put it in the china cabinet, you can toss it like a Frisbee in the backyard, I mean, it's your plate. You can do with it whatever you want. But beloved, it's precisely because we have received our being from our creator that we must steward our lives according to his will. You know, we can't just throw out or give away our family heirloom. Uh, How much more? Are we responsible to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to our creator? God expects us to live according to his rules, his decrees, because he is our creator owner. And yet, if everything belongs to God, does that mean that everything is rightly related to God? Does the, does the mere fact that God is creator mean that we can kind of saunter our way into God's presence and presume upon our acceptance? Well, to answer that, let's turn to our second section in verses 3 to 6, entitled, The Righteous King. 
It's in this section that the context of Psalms 1 to 23 really begins to be important. Because these verses are chock full of language that David has already used, the Psalter has already used, that we need to pick up on if we're to understand David aright. So notice verse 3. It reads, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? We should know three things about this question based on the context. So first, Psalm 1 verse 5 talked about the wicked who will not stand in the judgment. You hear that language of stand. Who shall stand in his holy place? Psalm 24. Psalm 1, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Today, legal rulings and judgments take place at the judge's bench, right? That's, that's where it happens, in the courtroom. But in the ancient Near East, you know, there wasn't like the legislature to make the laws, the judicial branch to interpret the laws, the executive branch to, to implement the laws. You just had the king. The king was the judge, the supreme judge. The point of Psalm 1 is that the wicked won't be able to stand before the righteous king and judge of all. And so David is picking up on that in Psalm 24 when he says, who shall stand in God's holy place? That is, who can withstand his perfect purifying judgment? Uh, Second, what is this hill of the Lord, this holy place? Well, this language has already been used before. In Psalm 2, verse 6, the Lord says, again, Psalm 2, verse 6, the Lord says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. All right, so this is, this is crucial if we are to understand Psalm 24. Because to the question of who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, who shall stand in God's holy place, well, Psalm 2 has already given us an answer to that question. Psalm 2, we've already learned that it's the anointed king of Israel who God establishes on his holy hill. Okay, so mark this. When David asks, who shall stand in God's holy place? He's asking about the king, the anointed one, who God said would stand there. So God says, I'm going to set my king on my holy hill. David says, who shall stand on your holy hill? Meaning, You know, what kind of king will this be? What must his character be like to stand with God in God's presence on God's hill? So here in Psalm 24, we need to understand that the remaining verses, specifically 3 to 6, are meant to describe the character and the person of the anointed king of Israel. Uh, that's confirmed in the third allusion we notice uh, from this opening question. It's, it's an allusion to Psalm 15. So you can just write it down, Psalm 15. Psalm 15 begins, a psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Uh, again, recalling to mind the fact that Psalm 2 declared that it would be the anointed king of Israel who dwelled on God's holy mountain. The point of Psalm 15 and Psalm 24 is that it's alluding back to that. And the rest of Psalm 15 is meant as a righteous, a description of this righteous king who shall stand in God's presence. All right, so we know that the wicked won't stand in God's presence. 
Now we know that David is referring to the king when he says, who shall stand before the Lord? What's the answer about the character and the conduct that this king must possess? Verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Uh, In this one verse, we see four attributes of the coming righteous king. First, he has clean hands. Uh, This means that the the king didn't use his hands. He didn't dirty his hands uh, through injustice and bloodshed and violence. He didn't use his body and his hands to work evil uh, selfishly. No, he has clean hands. They are innocent of bloodshed and wrongdoing. Second, he has a pure heart. So it's not just that his actions are righteous, but that his motives are pure. Uh, Beloved, how often do we do the, the right thing, but with the wrong motives, with an impure heart? Uh, But friends, God isn't interested in hypocrites. He's not interested in people who do the right thing on the outside, but with really insincere motives on the inside. Uh, So if if your understanding of Christianity is that God just wants me to do certain behaviors, and I've got to, you know, I'm sorry to say, but you just have a misunderstanding of what Christianity is about. God intends for our hearts and our motives to be pure. Third, he doesn't lift up his soul to what is false. If his hands refer to the king's actions and his heart to his motives and desires, here his soul refers to the spiritual and religious realm. We know this because the first verse of the next psalm, Psalm 25, begins with, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. So to to lift up your soul is to offer it as a sacrifice. It's to put it before a God as an offering and a tribute. And so the point is that this king, he doesn't worship false gods. He doesn't give himself to vain idols and false worship, but he serves the Lord alone. And then fourth and finally, this righteous king does not swear deceitfully. The parallel verse in Psalm 15, which again is really a parallel psalm to this section, states that he swears to his own hurt and does not change. Uh, The point is that this king, in his relationship with his neighbors, he doesn't cheat them. You know, he doesn't promise one thing and then change his mind. If he promises something, he comes through, even to his own harm. Uh, He's honest and trustworthy in his business dealings and in his relationships. And so so notice how kind of comprehensive this righteousness is for this king with his actions and his desires and his relationship with God and his relationship with neighbor. I mean, his righteousness is comprehensive. It is perfect. And and the result of this righteous character is what we see in verse 5. It reads, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness. What does it mean to receive righteousness from the God of his salvation? What does it mean to receive blessing? Well, in short, it's that God won't, won't turn him away. When he sojourns on God's hill, when he enters into God's presence, he won't be rejected and rebuffed, 
but be welcomed into God's presence. To speak of God's blessing is to speak of the totality of God's favor and bounty bestowed on us. The fact that this anointed king will receive righteousness from God his Savior most likely means that uh, his own righteousness will be vindicated on that day. So God will, will put on display and declare, this king, he's in the right to all of the king's enemies. But then in verse 6, we get a shift. And we've been talking about this king, this anointed one, what his character, singular, looks like. But in verse 6, the scope gets a lot wider. We read, such is the generation of those, plural, who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. The point seems to be that this future righteous king leads others to seek God's face as he himself has done. You know, as in all true righteousness, he seeks to bring others into the presence of God. He inspires a generation to emulate his own righteousness in entering God's house in God's hill. And so friends, make no mistake, uh, what is required of us if we are to draw near to God Well, if you and I are to enter God's holy place, then we too must have clean hands and a pure heart, exclusive devotion to the Lord, and genuine love of neighbor. But friends, the truth is that none of us have done that. You know, even even David, who again, Psalm 18, referred to as the servant of the Lord. God refers to David as a man after my own heart. It's like really high praise. But even David, he failed miserably at this. His hands were far from clean in his adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah. He did not have a perfectly pure heart, but an impure and selfish one. He never sacrificed to foreign gods, but he did give up himself to selfish promotion and ungodly pursuits. Uh, He failed to uphold his word, to use his authority for the good of others. And so David, like the rest of us, well, he fails to live up to the qualifications of Psalm 24. Uh, And so, beloved, let me just say that this is where the Bible is our friend. One of the things that is so refreshing about the Bible is that it doesn't flatter us, nor does it invite us to flatter ourselves. You know, so much of our lives are are attempts to impress others and, and put on a show for others. You know, the epitome of this is, of course, social media. How we can present these perfectly manicured images and these perfectly manufactured identities, these masks that we put on, Uh, But even at work, we really try to see competent and capable. Uh, Even with our friends, we try to seem cool or put together. You know, it's hardest to to wear a mask at home. But even there, do we really let our darkest, deepest secrets be known? Friends, it is good news when God shows us his standard and just tells us up front that we don't live up to it. Because we don't have to try to justify ourselves at that point. 
we don't have to live with this massive burden. Oh my gosh, how am I going to have perfectly clean hands, perfectly pure heart, perfectly living for God, perfectly loving neighbor? If you try to do that with the expectation, I think I can do this. I promise you will be crushed by that. That burden, the weight of that is something none of us on our own can handle. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We can give up the pretending and the pretense. We don't have to try to impress or persuade God to like us because God's word already comes to us and says, if it were up to you, Scott, if it were up to your behavior and your actions, I would not like you. Because Scott, in your heart of hearts, you are a rebel and a traitor. God is the owner, the creator of all things, and yet we don't have the righteousness which God requires. And when we see that, it's, it's a hard thing to look at your own sin. But when we see that, we begin to see the truth and the beauty and the sufficiency of Christ. That's what we see in our third section. Who then can fulfill Psalm 24, verses 3 to 6? And what king is there who can enter into God's presence without fear of rebuke or danger of sin? David wasn't good enough. You and I are not good enough. We turn now to our third section in verses 7 to 10, entitled, The Victorious Lord. So again, verse 3 had asked, Can anyone enter God's presence? Verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Friends, we should be shocked by what verses 7 to 10 reveal to us. In verses 3 to 6, David had just been considering the character and the righteousness required to enter God's presence. He had been considering the type of person that the anointed king of Israel must be to dwell with God. And then when verse 7 reads, Lift up your head, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. I mean, that's an exalted title, to be sure. But if you're tracking verses 3 to 6, you're assuming that he's referring to the king of Israel. That's who he has been referring to. These gates and doors refer to the temple doors, the ones located on Mount Zion, God's holy hill. This whole book of Psalms is about the king of Israel. And so then we're shocked, which we should be, When in verse 8, when the psalmist asks, who is this king of glory? Again, it's almost in exact parallel to verse 3. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Except the answer is not the anointed, the king of Israel. Instead, it is Yahweh, the Lord himself. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. The, The imagery is of the Lord returning home from battle, returning to his own temple, but it's as if his own gates, his own doors, they don't even recognize the king of glory. 
It's as if he's returned from this far off land, victorious in his mission, vanquishing his foes. But God's own gates don't even recognize their king. Beloved, the idea of, of God's kingship isn't absent. The book of Psalms, so again, so earlier, Psalm 1016 states, the Lord is king forever and ever. But everything in the previous verses and the previous chapters in the book of Psalms is priming us to, to be thinking of the, the king of glory is the anointed king of Israel, this righteous man who can enter into God's presence, who will rule the nations. Uh, the ending of Psalm, 12, Psalm 24 seems like an abrupt about face from where it had been going. And so at the end of Psalm 24, you and I are left with two questions. Should we expect a Davidic human king who can enter God's presence on the basis of a perfect righteousness? And why would the Lord leave his temple? And what foes and enemies are to be conquered in battle such that his own gates don't recognize him and must be commanded to open up upon his return? The answer to that is what we celebrate this Easter morning. The book of Psalms is not fundamentally about David. It's not about you or me. It is about the coming Messiah, the anointed king of Israel. It is about Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, who at his baptism was anointed with God's Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus, who perfectly and truly had clean hands ever in the service of others. He alone had a perfectly pure heart, never with mixed motives or selfish ambition. He fully lived for the glory of God, totally committed to serving his father. And he, and he alone, has truly loved his neighbor as himself. And the proof of that was nothing else than in him laying down his life for the sheep. Uh, so it was that the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate, truly God, become truly man. Well, on the cross, he died for our sins. For all the times we have failed to have clean hands and a pure heart for all the times we have failed to love God and neighbor as we ought. The totally innocent and righteous one suffered on the cross for our crimes as our substitute and our sin bearer, as our wrath bearer. And then he was buried for three days. He descended to the realm of the dead. He made company with the departed ones. And then on that first Easter, he arose on Sunday morning, he broke the power of sin and death by rising from the dead. And that's where most Easter sermons end. Uh, and it's a great ending. But it's not where Psalm 24 ends. It's not where Jesus' story ends. Because after Jesus rose, after he, he walked and lived and taught with his disciples a little bit longer, well, then what happened? He ascended. He returned to God's presence victorious from his mission to conquer sin and death and the devil. Uh, there in the heavenlies, he was received with glory and splendor, might and majesty, authority and thanksgiving and praise, our loud and glory and honor. 
Uh, Now the Lord Jesus has ascended to God's right hand. He sits in the heavenly courts as the perfectly righteous king of Israel, human Davidic anointed one, and the king of glory, the Lord of hosts. Friends, the incredible thing is that just as in Exodus 15, which Mark read earlier for us, well, now that the Lord has won the victory and won the battle, well, the whole reason God did that, which Mark brought up, the whole reason God did that in Exodus 15, the whole reason God does it today, is to bring us to his holy abode, to bring us to his holy mountain, to his presence. The Lord is a man of war who fought the Egyptians, yes, but he fights our sin. You know, Christian, what have you done to free yourself from your sin? Nothing. Only Jesus does that. What have you done to free yourself from condemnation? Nothing. Only the Lord of hosts does that. What have you done to secure your eternal redemption and eternal life in the new heavens and new earth? Reconciliation with God. The Holy Spirit being dwelled, dwelling in you. Oh, beloved, we didn't do any of that. Jesus is our king, our mighty warrior who fights on our behalf. So that now we, unrighteous and unclean though we are, though now if you will seek God's face, you can be accounted among Jesus' generation. Friends, you and I do not have the perfect righteousness required to open heaven's gates. But Jesus does. They opened for him, and now they're open for you. They're open for you, that you can walk through in his train. He as your king. Not on the basis of your good works, but on the basis of his. Friends, now Jesus has ascended to the throne with God the Father. Man with God is on the throne, as we'll sing in just a moment. Heaven's gates have been opened wide. And my only question for you is, have you opened your own heart to this King of Kings and Lord of Lords? He's been welcomed into heaven as the victorious King of all, the mighty conqueror who mounts in triumph. Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Christ's perfect life, sacrificial death, victorious resurrection, and glorious ascension? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess the manifold ways that we have fallen short of your glory, and yet we marvel at your plan of redemption, that the Lord Jesus would become the true King of Israel, and that God would take on flesh so that we could now enter into your presence on the basis of his righteousness. Father, we praise you for the great work you did in raising him from the dead. We praise you that one day he will come back to send from heaven with a shout. We do pray that you'd send him soon. Would you, would you end the suffering of this world with this Easter morning? Would you remind us of your victory? We pray these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, friends, we conclude our time by singing See the Conqueror Mounts in Triumph. Uh, This hymn was specifically written as a meditation on Psalm 24. So let's stand together and sing See the Conqueror Mounts in Triumph.